I'm very delighted this morning to welcome um, to Ascension in St. Agnes um, <clears throat> Professor Catherine Grieve, who, as most of you know, is Professor of New Testament at Virginia Theological Seminary. Um, and I have personally learned a great deal from her, from her work on Paul in particular. We've worked together in, uh, in the past in, in a yeah. group at uh, the Centre for Theological Inquiry at Princeton. Kathy is a very learned lady in many ways. She has so many degrees that I lose count, but there are at least two in law um, before two in, in theology, in addition to an original BA. Um, and I think her account of Paul's vision of justice and justification is probably um, to some extent informed by all her earlier thinking about mercy and justice. So, Kathy, we're delighted to have you here this morning. Um, I hope you've all got a rather substantial handout, if not uh, Bruce, um, Rex is, uh, and uh, Mary are waving them. Um, and Kathy is going to start by actually creating a segue from the last two weeks, because she has kindly been here, um, and what will unfold today will therefore be situated in what we have been learning in the last two weeks. Thank you, Kathy. Over to you. It's my joy and pleasure to be with you, and, and I'm grateful, um, Sarah, for your invitation uh, to speak about a, a topic that I care about a lot, um, and it really does fit in with, your, with the themes that we're exploring. Um, of course, next week it will tie it all together, you'll tie it all together, uh, with, the, uh, with the resurrection. And I'm in some ways anticipating that because, as you know, the tradition doesn't talk about just the cross by itself. Um, we think about the, the triduum as a, as a unit and indeed uh, following uh, Rowan Williams, the incarnation as, as a whole unit. So let me just read quickly through my, my attempt at summarizing where we've been for the last two weeks and then uh, dive into Paul. Rowan Williams, speaking of Christ, the heart of creation, reminded us that the Christ event is an entire act of God, which we call the incarnation. Um, the, um, the whole the, the, um, text anticipating the arrival of Jesus Christ, as Christians read them, um, the birth and uh, not much on the childhood, only in Luke, but the, the uh, end of the life of Christ. Um, and then um, the, the, the uh, controversy with the authorities the last week, uh, the betrayal, um, the uh, long night of uh, interrogation, um, torture, death, uh, burial, and resurrection, um, and the wonderful phrase, all according to the scriptures, meaning in dialogue with the, with the scriptures. Um, he warned us about uh, patterns of thought that are less helpful than others, um, trying to see God and human beings vying for space in different doctrines. Uh, especially the idea of, of will, of the will. Uh, confusion uh, about the, of, the, of the biblical narratives with the conciliar creeds, an issue close to my heart, uh, because um, that happens so much um, when you're first starting out in seminary. And then attempts to avoid paradox, which of course is unavoidable and that we wouldn't want to if we thought about it more. He reminded us that the parables and many of Jesus' teachings have an open-ended intensive quality like poetry um, and that the biblical stories often raise more questions than they answer 
um, they begin more questions than they end. And indeed, I would argue that those, those questions that are raised for us are gifts of God, perhaps even strategies of God to draw us closer to God's self. Um, um, I, we should welcome questions because they are uh, ways of becoming closer to God. God's not afraid of our questions, I believe. Uh, Nicholas Lombardo last week um, identified some puzzling passages from Scripture. Um, I'm not, I'm just, I've just listed them there, but I'm going to um, move to the to cut to the chase here. Um, these puzzling passages seem to suggest that um, that God uh, planned in some way for the, the suffering of Christ on the cross, um, and indeed, uh, they uh, I think they are read that way. Um, and he talked about the various um, theoretic theorizations of the atonement by Anselm Abelard, and particularly Gregory of Nyssa, who was is, who is attractive to him, uh, the idea that the uh, devil is um, tricked in the cross uh, like a, a fish caught on a hook um, uh, that was so popular among some of the patristic writers. This week, we go back. Um, we turn our attention to the church's earliest theologian, one of its greatest theologians, Paul. Um, I find it helpful to, to remind myself about the timeline. So I'm going to just, um, just very quickly whiz through this. Jesus is uh, uh, killed and crucified, crucified and raised from the dead around 30. We have almost no information about the earliest developments of Christian theology, notice developments of Christian theology, uh, theology develops between 30 and 50. Um, Paul then is our first, um, the, the letters of Paul are our earliest Christian documents. First Thessalonians is the early, probably the earliest Christian writing we have. We don't have anything in writing from Jesus. Um, the Gospel of Mark's written during the Jewish War, probably 66 to 70. Luke, Matthew, usually around 85. John, 85, 90 maybe. And everything in the New Testament, probably by 100. Um, the earliest, we don't have any of the original documents of the New Testament, but we do have manuscripts dating back from the second century. Um, and so that's quite a bit earlier than the conciliar era. Um, I want to start it with Irenaeus. Um, but uh, then you, you know the, the most important, well, I don't, I don't know, we could fight about that, but I think the most important councils are, are later here, giving you their dates. So um, Rowan Williams is warning not to confuse the theology of the first biblical writings, the letters of Paul, with the later gospels, and the much later doctrinal formulations of the councils is important to remember. We're going back to the 50s. Big cars, fins, grubs. Well, not those. <laughs> We're going back to the real 50s. Okay, okay. Could I just intercept and say that I think it was very important to Father Nicholas last weekend to try and probe to what Jesus himself might have thought about his own atoning undertaking. Um, and of course, this is highly speculative because it comes out of the Gospels, which were written so much later. But that's why he hung so much on giving his life as a ransom for many. And the Jonah story, because both of these logial sayings appear to go back to Jesus himself. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that compares with this earlier tradition in Paul that you're about to expound. 
Thank you. Right. Of course, I'm very interested in the, the, the Logia of the Jesus tradition, um, but Paul was not so much. Paul mm -hmm. focused on the what we might call the career of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the larger narrative, particularly the death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, we have very little up in Paul about the, the Jesus of history, um, but we all want to know as much as we can about that. Um, we're more limited than we wish we were, in my view. Um, all right, so I think one of the first things to, to look at is the question of what did Paul already have on the ground? Where did he start? What was available? And so we go to those 20 years of, of obscurity, um, and it's Kesemann called them twilight over terra incognito. Um, in other words, a dark, dark and, uh, not, and not able to make out much. But we can see um, how we find pre-Pauline tradition is that we notice Paul talking about things as if everybody knew what he was talking mm. about. Mm. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to explain what baptism is. He doesn't have to explain what the Eucharist is. He can, refer, he can, he can talk about why they're important theo theologically or what difference it makes for the community, whether they're pract practicing the Eucharist uh, the right way or not, whether they understand that baptism is baptism into the death of Jesus Christ and that it changes everything, that we're no longer subject to sin as a result of baptism. Um, so we, when we see things like that, uh, we, and, and that's one of the things I'll mention as in place when, when Paul started, but the, the thing that blows my mind still, always, is how in those first 20 years, the terrible, shameful death of Jesus on a Roman cross, the worst kind of death a good Jewish boy could have, outside of the holy city, next to the garbage dump, on a hill surrounded by bones that the death makes you unclean, and dogs, not good in the Bible, um, killed by Roman soldiers, pagans, um, and, and apparently feeling abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would argue that he was not, and that those cosmological events actually show us that uh, God was there, present. Uh, um, in, uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, felt abandoned, a, t a terrible death, a terrible, uh, horrible, shameful death. In the ancient world, Martin Hengel helps us here, if, if you were unfortunate enough to have a family member who was crucified, you didn't talk about it. Uh, it was something that you just, uh, it was just so horrible. All of the higher literature of the period doesn't mention crucifixion. It's, it shows up in street talk. You end up like, keep that up, you'll end up on a cross. Okay. So um, it, it was a horrible death. And, but within 20 years, already there, by the time Paul starts writing, um, the, um, it's understood as a gracious gift of God that has changed everything and redeemed and freed humanity in some way. Um, a, a great gift of God, God's vindication of Jesus, uh, and uh, the, the proof that Jesus is Lord, which is the earliest Christian confession. I've given you the citation there. Um, already in place is the idea that Jesus is the pre-existent son of God, um, whose death somehow brings atonement for humanity. So we have already, uh, Paul can draw on traditions of various kinds. Christ, our Paschal Lamb, our Passover was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the festivals, probably um, some kind of hymnic statement or creedal statement. 
Just as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, Adam's disobedience, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, from Romans 5, the whole Adam-Christ, Christ-Adam typology. Um, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5, probably. This, these ideas are probably already in place. And I said sacramental practices. The church is already worshiping Jesus, um, and the church is uh, baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Paul says, not in my name. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the whole idea of being in Christ, uh, Paul uses it as if it were obvious. Um, the language from 1 Corinthians 11, so familiar to us. I, I deliver to you, Paul says, what I received uh, from the Lord that on the night that Jesus Christ was, was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread and took wine uh, and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, which um, it's as, as if it were written yesterday for us, but it's way old it's from Paul. But he's, he's got it already in tradition, so it's, um, it's not original to him. He's reminding the Corinthians what they know about the Eucharist. We can, we can assume, I mean, I sometimes say, we have the 1549 Book of Common Prayer. We need the 49 Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> um, we have the hymnal, probably, in the Psalter, but we, don't, we could really use more information about the earliest Christian liturgies. But we have clues uh, in Paul's writings, particularly, about what some of it must have looked like. And then the whole way of reading scripture uh, from an apocalyptic point of view. Summary in a couple of sentences, what is apocalyptic? The idea is that God's good creation has been invaded by hostile powers, sin and death. I'm capitalizing them on purpose, um, the way that many Pauline scholars do. These powers have managed to enslave humanity, and indeed the whole creation is in bondage because of the fall of our first parents. With Christ, however, the new age of the reign of God has begun. Not yet fully realized, but already begun. The powers of sin and death have been defeated uh, by God in the cross of Christ. Christ is the mighty victim who could not be conquered by death. Um, I like to think of him as a greased pig. Um, can't be captured by, by, by death. Uh, absolutely eluded um, the power of death and broke the power of sin, snapped it in two. Um, so um, first, see 1 Corinthians 15 for details uh, about a lot of that. The Christus Victor idea speaks, in my mind, more about a great battle won by God in Christ than it is about tricking the devil, um, which I, I think is a fascinating patristic idea, but a, a minority, a, a minority view, never really the majority tradition in classic Christian thought. I have given you, on the, on the page that we're not really gonna work through, uh, two things, three hymn texts from the 1982 hymnal that uh, that support, I think, the argument about the about how Christus Victor theology has shaped uh, classic Christian hymnody in uh, throughout the centuries. The earliest one I have is Latin, a Latin, the third one, a Latin text from seventh or eighth century. Um, although I suspect that the Latin text from the 17th century is based on something older. Uh, and Luther's dates, you know. So um, on the other side is a, an, an Orthodox icon that, um, that I know you know, but let me just remind you, this is the, um, one of the antiphons from the Orthodox tradition, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. 
the Anastasis, the resurrection, uh, shows Christ pulling, they, they have no power, they're dead, pulling Adam and Eve out of their graves, out of hell. You can see uh, the uh, broken, the, the doors of, of hell. They're not quite smashed, but they're certainly off their hinges and all kinds of instruments of torture and, um, and um, unpleasantness are lying there useless now. Uh, not only Adam and Eve, but patriarchs and matriarchs uh, from before Christ and um, patriarchs and matriarchs after Christ. So the, the resurrection redeems um, the, the past. Um, you can, we sometimes say you can't change the past, but God can. God can change even the past. And of course, God can um, redeem the future uh, can can this resurrection and the work of God in Christ comprehend sins that haven't even been committed yet? So, um, oh, these are all things we can talk about, um, but I want to um, go on. But maybe first we stop um, at that point for questions or comments. That's a lot on the table before we even get to Pauline texts. Your questions or comments are welcome. Here's one of them. Who are the custodians of these early writings, and how were they indeed published, and how were they discovered by people at that time? And I've never been quite clear on that. I'm going to give you a short answer, um, <laughs> but um, it's a very good question, and and it's a it's worth knowing more about text criticism and how we got the the, the uh, how the manuscript. The first thing to say is that the, it's a labor of love to care for and preserve manuscripts, um, and that people. Um, not to be overly dramatic about it, died so that we might have these manuscripts. They were asked to hand over their, their sacred writings and their treasures, and they refused. What sacred writings? Um, and so that's why we have them. So that's the first thing to say. Um, we have letters from Paul uh, because the church has saved them. We don't have, we know that, for example, the Corinthians wrote to Paul. We don't have those letters. Um, but we do, we practice mirror reading. So like listening to one half of a telephone call in a, in a room, you can guess what the person on the other side of the phone is saying, even though you can't quite hear it. And so um, New Testament scholars are forced to do that. The history of the manuscripts um, is a long, complicated one, but worth your time and attention, I would commend uh, it to you, and I'm happy to talk to you afterwards mm. if you want. Thank you. Mm. So the story so far as I hear it is that in Paul, the absolutely fundamental matrix of his thinking about atonement is this great battle between good and evil, which has been won by Christ through his death and resurrection. Has been, has been won, although the powers don't, don't know it yet. Right. Uh, don't say. Uh, so they're still causing a little bit of trouble. Right. Uh, we're, still <laughs> we're still experiencing death. Right. We're still experiencing death, and I like, though, Luther's line, I'd forgotten this, um, in the second hymn, um, um, it's it second, second stanza. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended, but victory remained with life, the reign of death was ended. Stripped of power, no more he reigns, an empty form alone remains, his sting is lost forever. That's, of course, a reference to 1 Corinthians 15 and the taunt song 
That's what you do when you've conquered an enemy. It's like, oh, death, what happened to your stinger? <laughs> Lost it, huh? <laughs> Um, we have had examples of taunt songs in the in scripture from from the earlier writings, um, but this is a clear uh, pattern of a taunt song. Um, death has lost, and um, that's uh, the, the 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 battle's over. So whatever theorization is, that's the wrong right or wrong word that Paul's going to bring to the atonement through the death. It's encased in this presumption that the people he's writing or speaking to have experienced the power of the resurrection through their baptism and the Christian life. And continue to experience it in the, in the Eucharist. Um, I think both of those things are already in place. Yeah. All right, let me go on. Um, <clears throat> One question is... Oh, sorry. Um, ...that's outside of the scriptures from that period of 30 to 50. Mm -hmm. Any historian, any writings that we can that even acknowledge that something is happening in Jerusalem and beyond? No. <laughs> there, is a, there is the letter of Pliny, isn't there, that, that, that the Christians sing well, songs to Christ as to a god. What's the date of that? What's the date of Pliny? Um, I think it's second century. Someone got the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the earliest non-Christian attestations. And then there's also a, but from about the same period, a, um, a scratched um, cartoon in a stone in Rome. That in says, in the, yes, it says, Anaximenus worships his god. And it's, it's like bottom in the Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a man on the cross mm, with a crucified, with, ass, crucified yeah. as an ass. Yeah. And so it's making fun of the idea that there could be a god who would be crucified. That must be an idiot. That must be an ass. And that's very revealing because that's yeah. the other side of the, you know, what's going on at this time. There are all these Christians. They, they sing songs to Christ as to a god, but then others mock it. Right. There's also, by the way, a crucified serpent. And that's not the... Um, that's not the serpent in the garden, that's the uh, serpent in num from Numbers that was lifted up uh, to, uh, to cure um, um, coronavirus. <laughs> so um, it's, um, it's the, the, um, the power of, of God to uh, use sin and human disobedience for healing um, humans. Yeah. And of course, Christ the shepherd is an also a, a very early picture so we do have some we have some nonverbal evidences that are probably pretty early good thanks for all these questions I love the questions that are asked here They're at a very high level okay so four major ideas about death and resurrection of Christ and Paul probably more than that but this is if I had have only limited amount of time these are the ones I'm going to pick the first is the centrality of the cross for Christian proclamations, and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is, is the place to go for the clearest expression of this. I just picked uh, two verses. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and the, word, the Greek word is moria, insanity, uh, to Gentiles, the crucified has. Uh, but to the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's not shy about talking about 
uh, Jesus as both word of God and wisdom of God, both um, expressions of, of energy, power that comes from God, goes to the world, and returns back to God. Think about Isaiah 55, my word will not return to me empty, it will prosper in that which I sent it. Um, for the purpose I sent it. And the two versions of the wisdom story, wisdom comes down to earth and is either received by people and they become wise or is rejected by people and she returns um, to God um, uh, frustrated. Um, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Uh, the second one is the, the idea of the great exchange. And Morna Hooker is the hero here. Um, she's the one that really retrieved this ancient tradition. Um, it's there in Luther. He's, by the time Luther is still really, in many ways, a medieval theologian. Um, and he's one of the ones who writes about the mystical marriage of Christ and the soul. Um, so what's the great exchange? Let's just hear it first in Paul's language. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you thought Augustine's whose service is perfect freedom was tensive paradoxical language, try this one. Um, it's, um, it's, this, it's so loaded. Both halves of the statement are um, humanly thinking impossible. For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Why? How? What? <laughs> so that in him we might become, in him, that's very important, there's the two most important words in that second half, we might become the righteousness of God. Impossible! How is this? Um, we might become the righteousness of God. Um, so, but yes, um, that's what the claim is. Very strong claim. And, and marriage, the marriage imagery helps here, and this is where some legal uh, background does help, in marriage, um, the, the, the couple have all things in common. So Christ takes our sin that we bring to the marriage. Um, we take Christ's righteousness, God, Christ's faithfulness, which is what he brings to the marriage. And so um, it's, there's a mystical marriage of Christ and the soul that is also understood uh, as a great exchange, a great exchange of gifts um, and that you see that several places in, in Paul, but this is the clearest one. Um, I'll stop in a minute and we'll talk about all this. <laughs> For, um, the third one is the, the logic of the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 to 11. I know you know this, but I'm going to just um, remind you of what you already know. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself, being found in human form. And being found in human likeness, he uh, emptied himself further, um, taking, taking, um, sorry, taking the form of a slave. Um, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him uh, and gave him the name Lord, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the earliest Christian confession to the glory of God the Father. That is a parabola, if you remember your high school geometry, just a dotted line in the middle and the two halves of a parabola, that's the Greek word for parable. Um, so it's one thing is like, one side is like the other side. 
um, but it's also the parabola, the, the great descent, pre-existence, descent into human existence, and then what Lee Keck calls post-existence of Jesus Christ, the, the ascension, session at the right hand of God, and the promise to return to judge the quick and the dead. Um, so the, the logic of the Christ hymn in Philippians is not, it's a, it's the, the piece is probably traditional, uh, another piece of, of uh, pre-Pauline tradition, but then what Paul does with it is anything but traditional. I wish that every parish studied this, these, the chapter, the information around it. What Paul then does is to use his two colleagues, his two co-workers as examples of people who are living the Christ hymn. Epaphroditus and Timothy, I'll let you figure out how that goes. And to um, call on others, particularly his important co-workers, Euodia and Syntyche, uh, to follow the Christ pattern in, as they argue with one another. So um, it's the whole thing is, is, um, is this is a, a, a parable for us, the, the logic of it. It's a pattern of holiness to which we are being conformed. And Christ, uh, Paul believes that we are being changed uh, by God uh, in the process of being the community that is in Christ, we are being transformed uh, already. Our, our, uh, we, are, our, uh, we see God in each other's face. Um, we, see the Im we see the image of God in others if we can't see it in ourselves. And then finally, there are three metaphors um, that are crucial to uh, that very tightly uh, uh, argued verses in Romans 3, 22 to 25. I'm just going to read it. I have bolded the key words here. We'll talk about the metaphors. The righteousness of God um, has now been disclosed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as hilasterion um, by his blood through faithfulness. Okay, let's talk about these. The justification is the one that you all know um, from uh, Luther and, and everybody, really, the, the courtroom model. We are guilty as hell, um, but God looks on Jesus Christ and sees his faithfulness and righteousness, and so uh, we are... Uh, we are forgiven. It's as if we were clothed in Christ, almost as if um, God couldn't see past Christ when God looks at, at our, us and the, and the horrible things we've done. Uh, we are then uh, forgiven. We are set free. Um, and some, in some versions, we are set free, and he goes um, to the cross. Um, redemption, we talked about some last week. It's the idea of buying back. How could people become slaves in the in the ancient world? Um, well, if you could be born into slavery, but you could also be captured by pirates, or you could, bad luck, be a prisoner of war. Um, the good news, the, the word euangelion, the gospel, um, it ha has one of the most important meanings of that word is we didn't lose the battle. The, the, the messenger comes running from the battlefield and says, we, we won, we didn't, and mostly that means we didn't lose because if we had lost, our menfolk would all be killed and our women and children would be sold into slavery, sexual slavery and other kinds of slavery. So um, a family member that, you remember, you have to be the right person in order to redeem a family member. Uh, think about uh, Boaz and Ruth. Um, 
And so Jesus Christ, because he is our older brother, um, has the, the, the right to buy us back, redeem us. So redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and then whom God put forward as Hilasterion, that's the covering of the mercy seat. So now we're not Christ our Passover, but Christ our uh, Leviticus 16 day of atonement um, sacrificial animal, um, and the blood that's poured over the mercy seat by the high priest uh, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, it's either the, the sacrifice itself or the place where the sacrifice is offered, um, his blood. So, summary, and then we'll talk. Paul thinks that Christ died for the ungodly, died for sinners, died for all people, died as the Messiah or Christ of Israel, died as the last Adam to redeem the past, to redeem the future, see the end of Romans 8, and for the renewal of the creation which was enslaved along with humanity. I know that's a very strong statement, but I'll, I'll stand with mm. that. So let's talk. Mm. Can I just draw out one point that might help people sure. link to last week? So in one of the, one of the things about particularly this um, Romans 3 passage, which by the way is probably the most important passage in the whole Reformation. I mean, it's absolutely key for Luther recovering uh, the tradition of Paul and the justification theme, justification by faith. But when you just read that passage, you go, whoa, what's happening? There are three things happening. There are yeah. three things happening at once. There are three absolutely dense, rich metaphors just flung at you in two verses. And I think one of the important things here is that the very earliest church, that's how it did its atonement theology. It took rich metaphors that were dense and in some sense, as all metaphors are, somewhat unpackable. You can unpack them to a certain extent, but they are richer than and stranger than rationality. Um, and then to put three on top of one another um, expresses what Christians found to be both expressible and inexpressible in the life of redeemed and justified and sanctified Christianity. I think what Nicholas was talking about last week was extremely revealing because by the time you get to um, uh, to the Middle Ages, to the Scholastic period or the early Scholastic period, Anselm, Anselm is saying, "Wait a minute! I really want to sort this out. I want to theorise this in a way that is more convincing than this kind of mutual bombardment of different metaphors all at once." So he rolls up his sleeves. Um, and he tries to make more rational sense of one of these metaphors, which is the righteousness, justification, law court one, right, and makes that central. And then Abelard says, no, I don't like that for various reasons. I would rather have a subjective love response. Um, but I think that's what's so confusing to us now as moderns. We would like to have one theory that sorts out the doctrine of the atonement. Um, and that's not the way it was done in the earliest church. Right. Paul gives thanks to God for his inexpressible gift. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think he believes it is. It's not something we can sort out. Not something we can, it's ultimately, fundamentally, mystery. And I, we shouldn't rush to use the word mystery as, as if we were lazy theologians and say, oh, that's a mystery. Um, but uh, at, the, at some point, when you're talking about um, something that is at the very heart of God, it is 
it, 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 mystery is really the only word I think we can use. Of course, mysterion sacramentum, um, we, we know something about the way, um, I mean, one of the arguments for, um, for infant baptism in our tradition is that you don't have to be a theological expert about exactly how Christ was present in the, in the Eucharist in order to receive communion. Um, you, you somehow accept that even though it, you can't define it or explain it exactly. Um, the same thing with, with baptism. Um, but I, I think what's, what's most important is that this tensive paradoxical language be, be honored, as you just did, for, for what it is mm -hmm. and for what it can give us. That's not to throw shade on um, later attempts to, to work things out um, logically. Anselm had a brilliant mind. Uh, the whole thing is a prayer. Mm -hmm. He's, it, this is faithful, loving, this is worshiping God with your mind. Um, absolutely wonderful, wh whether you like his answer or not. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's faithful, uh, faithful Christian work. And Abelard is, I mean, the logic of the Christ hymn in Philippians, love answers love's appeal, mm -hmm. uh, says, says Abelard in his, in his atonement mm -hmm. hymn, um, so that, that we are persuaded by the model, by the by the, um, uh, the Christ pattern, and we, as we are being conformed uh, to the image of Christ, we become more Christ-like in our way of thinking. Mm -hmm. that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. a, that's a, a, a logical uh, next step from the Christ hymn to a rational understanding mm -hmm. of the atonement. But um, as you're suggesting, the church has never insisted on any one model of the atonement, and that's wisdom. I think we can be very glad about that. If they had, there would have been a lot more deaths. <laughs> um, I mean, it, remember in the in the time of the of the Reformation, our English history is an example when we flip flopped monarchs for a while. Um, if your understanding of how Christ was present in the Eucharist did not match that of the Archbishop of Canterbury, you could lose your head for it. Um, but it's a mystery. How could how could anybody explain exactly what happens? in the presence of Christ in, in the Eucharist. So how much more the, the atonement? Um, yeah. Questions, yes, David. Do you think that Paul believed in universal salvation? Mm. I do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then if, if everybody goes to heaven, how important are these doctrines? Oh, I love <laughs> questions like that. Um, <laughs> um, I th this is where I think uh, uh, something that Karl Barth said in his Church Dogmatics is helpful. Christians are the people who know what God has done in Christ, but that doesn't give us any kind of an edge uh, on, on salvation. Um, Christ died for all. Uh, Christ died for, um, this is clearest in the end of, of uh, Romans. Um, uh, where Paul is so keen to say we should welcome one another because God has already welcomed them, we should welcome one another because Christ has already welcomed them, um, and that the um, there is nothing, 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 including unbelief that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So ignorance is not a problem. Our ignorance is not a problem for for God. Um, God's work is God's work, and human. This is the mistake that I think we. Uh, post enlightenment people tend to make over and over again we have to so don't do that um, we tend to think that our understanding of things our individual 
knowledge about things or understand is what's determinative of reality somehow. And it isn't. <laughs> it just isn't. So, um, so if we can let go of that, um, and trust that God knows what God is doing, which is very hard to do sometimes. Um, then we're then we're closer to see to seeing something about our real place in the in the in the world. Um, Paul doesn't on the, on heaven. Paul does hardly says anything about heaven. Um, the so the in fact. The New Testament only barely talks about heaven and hell. All of that is developed pretty soon, actually. Already in the Apocalypse of Peter, you have a, an elaborate system of people being punished for their, for their crimes. Uh, punishment fits the crime. Um, and uh, then, of course, somebody like Dante takes it to the max in the medieval world. Um, but in, the, in, our, in this period, um, the... the uh, Heaven is the place where God, God dwells, um, where God's will is done. Uh, it needs to be done on earth, but it is already done in, in heaven. So heaven is the sphere of God's power. Um, and, uh, and, and hell is a, just an idea about a place where, where, the, where the absence of God. And so all the, all the elaborate stuff, we have, we have Dante in our minds, whether we know it or not, who's so powerful. So does that help at all? Would you like to spell out a bit as to whether you think Paul thinks that God imparts righteousness to us or, or merely imputes, imputes it? Oh. Yes, this is a great Reformation debate. Yeah. Um, a lot yes, the language, the language that I used a few minutes ago about uh, from Luther and folks like that, about Christ seeing, God seeing us clothed with with Christ, yeah. um, it sounds like him imputed, and, yeah. and of course Luther famously um, um, just justified yet still a, a sinner. Mm. Um, and um, simul justus et simul justus et peccator, or ac peccator, either one of those. Um, so, yeah, um, on I think. Um, Paul would have to say both, actually, mm -hmm. um, and that's not helpful. I know that, but no, I, think I think he would is. have to say both, uh, because we're, um, if we're stuck in some, what some people have called the Lutheran paradox, the Lutheran, not just Luther, but Lutheranism, mm -hmm. uh, as it developed in the, especially under the influence of Immanuel Kant, mm -hmm. um, uh, in the centuries afterwards, um, the. Um, um, it, it can be a it can be a, a conceptual trap. You, there's not much incentive to improve if you're you're already justified. Um, so you know, um, as Paul says, um, why not go on sinning so that grace may abound? No, that's not what I meant. Uh, as some people have viciously said, we teach. As he says, I'm not teaching that. So um, Paul actually thought that we were that God was working salvation in us. So uh, justification and sanctification are one th almost one thing for Paul. We are becoming holy. We are being becoming. So it is imparted as well as imputed. I would think we'd have to say both for Paul. That's a great question. Thank you. Yes. Nothing can separate one from the love of God. Mm. And I think um, the tears that we have to bring to prayer is an affirmation of how much God loves us. 
and doesn't mind getting dirty telling us about it. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I, I sometimes say to my students that um, I have decided to follow Jesus is a great hymn, but it's not Paul's hymn. <laughs> Paul's hymn is Amazing Grace <laughs> that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> um, so it's not, the focus is not so much on human decision making. That's the problem with an overstatement of the Lutheran paradox. It makes faith a work. So um, you don't do works of righteousness, but you do the work of faith. And it sh it's one of the ways in which Luther was still a medievalist. The, the medieval world was a terrified world, terrified about whether they would have faith at the moment of death, um, and uh, terrified about whether, whether they would commit sin after baptism, so you wait until you're almost dead to get baptized so that you can't commit sin after baptism, because that's not forgivable. Um, and if you have any doubts, um, I, I um, use the example of the Monty Python Holy Grail. Uh, and some of you will know this. If you, the, the, you're trying to cross the ravine that goes down to a bottomless pit, uh, what's, your, what's your name? What's your quest? What's your favorite color? Uh, blue, no problem. You walk right across. Blue, blue yellow, blue. And there you go, down into the pit. If you're not sure, if you're not 100% positive in your faith in God, you're doomed in this medieval world. It's terrible, terrified conscience. No wonder. I think the, Where are we? the well, I think it'd be lovely to hear a little bit about the new perspective on Paul to end. But, right, and we were supposed to do that. But, but I, I think the the passage in Paul that sticks most in the craw of the modern person is probably he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Because that was the problem that Anselm was struggling with. You know, yeah. how can we say that God is righteous if he makes his own son to stand in the place of sin? And um, that's why the underlying idea of a happy exchange is the one that I think we find it difficult to think of in the modern conception, that of being so closely related to Christ that we can be mingled in such a way that our own sin is overtaken by his righteousness. That's a very hard one to get one's I mind think so around. Too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Luther used the image of a, of a prince marrying a peasant girl. Mm -hmm. Um, to to make that to show how that marriage and that works economically mm. and power power wise, uh, but it doesn't help us with the with the sin part. Um, about you know, and then there's the probably um, um, mythic story about uh, Luther. I mean, a conversation with, that Luther had with his wife Katie von Bora, a theologian in her own right. She read the Genesis 22 Akeda story and said, "How could any father?" How could any father uh, attempt to sacrifice his own son? And Luther, in the story, of course, Luther corrects her and says, um, but don't you see, Katie? That's what God did in Christ. Um, so, but, it's, but of course it's hard. Um, and yes, so we get the claims about divine child abuse and, and other things, critiques of, the, of that aspect of the... But these are metaphors. They're not... All metaphors walk on crutches. <laughs> They're not meant to be mm. taken quite as, can I say, flat-footedly? Mm. <laughs> like sometimes, I, I mean, we, we do the literal reading, that is, we pay attention to what the words actually say in the text, but um, we, we move um, um, uh, away from a, a flat reading.
where you just say it interprets itself. Well, no, it doesn't. There's lots of work for the, for the reader to do. And what I was saying earlier about questions, if it didn't raise questions for us, we should be worried. Um, the, the, um, sometimes the, the scriptures warn us about dangerous places to go, and yet that's the, those are the only places that could help us. We're in such trouble um, that we, that we uh, where we would have been in so much trouble. Um, the, if, I think the most important thing to, to, think, to remember is, is Bart's little story about Lake Constance, about the man who on a very dark, snowy night lost his way and, and finally made it home and then the next morning discovered to his horror that he had crossed over the uh, ice of, the, of Lake Constance at any moment, if that ice had given way, he would have immediately been plunged into the depths and, and, and drowned a horrible cold death. And so we look back from a place of safety in God to where we would have been were it not for what God has done in Christ. And that's a different place to begin the conversation about atonement than, than some of the other places we tend to begin. And also I think it's interesting that each of the models we looked at last week are already encoded in Paul. So yes, they all go back everybody to Paul. who comes later goes back to Paul, Have finds to deal with this Paul. great pile of metaphors, and then chooses one, chooses one, chooses two, whatever. So yeah. this, is the, this is the place where it all starts. Could we ask by... We end by asking you to say something about I will. this great new movement. Well, it's not very new now. I'm saying it's not very new anymore, <laughs> but it's still talked about a lot. And so um, if, if we have time, the, the three major players, and they're all very different people, mm -hmm. uh, E.P. Saunders, um, James Dunn, and, and uh, Tom Wright. Um, I, I've said here, I, I, I mean, I, had, I did this in five minutes, which doesn't do any of them justice. <laughs> um, so I, I confess that right up front. Mm -hmm. Um, E.P. Saunders has helped us by uh, calling our attention to the, and it's, it's him, his voice that I'm echoing here when I talk about the focus is on social inclusion and boundaries between Jews and Gentiles and boundary markers such as circumcision and dietary laws uh, that um, Paul thinks are, are expendable. Although he himself probably, well, he was circumcised on the eighth day, darn it, and, uh, um, and uh, probably kept uh, kashrut his, his whole life. But he insisted that the uh, Galatian Gentiles did not need to become circumcised and did not need to do. You don't have to become Jewish first in order to become Christian. I think that's, I think that's a useful uh, additional reading of Galatians, but it misses a whole theological argument that's incredibly important um, and, and one of the tendencies of the new perspective is to focus on, on the social, um, political, and economic dim dimensions of the letters with, with, I would argue, without giving enough weight to the And this theology. is a reaction to particularly Lutheran, pietistic, individualistic account of Paul, which right. is taken away from the Jewish. Yes, it's me and Jesus. Yeah, so of course the, we, it is social. Mm. Everything Paul does is, is framed in a communal uh, framework. The body of Christ is huge for him. Um, so um, that's, that's an important corrective. Um, James Dunn, we talked about this um, and in planning, wrote an entire book um, arguing that there is no real doctrine of pre-existence 
in the Pauline letters. I, I compare that to swimming upstream through molasses with people shooting arrows at you. It's a very hard <laughs> case to make, and I don't think he makes it. Um, but it's important. But it's interesting that he would try to make it. Um, it's uh, it's uh, so so clear in so much Christian teaching that um, the the uh, the son of God, the Philippians, Christ is a, is a, is a he's, that's his I think hardest text. Um, <clears throat> Tom Tom Wright. Um, I have to distinguish between N.T. Wright and Tom Wright um, <laughs> because N.T. Wright writes brilliant. Um, uh, tomes <laughs> um, <laughs> on uh, on Paul and Jesus, and and Tom Wright writes what what I sometimes call airplane books. Um, it's not fair, but, I, but they do sometimes sound like they're um, they're they're uh, they're preachy and they're and they come out of a tradition that's that's based in mostly in arguing with your enemies about about what's what's right. They're they're not as helpful. And the, the, the Paul for Everyone series, I think, is part of that latter group. Um, so, um, uh, so love him and all, it's an Anglican bishop, why, how could you not love him? But also um, read him with, uh, with some push him back, push back um, mm -hmm. on some things that, uh, that he, he just assumes are obvious to everybody. And they, they're, I think maybe they're not so obvious as he thinks they are. So. But I think for but me, the exciting, yeah. the exciting dimension of this change in Lutheran, and, 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 and sort of rather anti-Lutheran, um, um, Jewish contextualized readings of Paul has been... Right, that's very welcome. And of course... Pushing back into the thought, Jewish thought forms that were absolutely natural to him, e.g. on the notion of uh, atonement and sacrifice in the temple. Um, Paul's uh, Romans, particularly, is the most scripturally dense book in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And Romans 9 to 11, where Paul wrestles with the question of unbelieving Israel, is the most scripturally dense part of Romans. So it's absolutely crucial to see Paul, as, uh, and all of them at the beginning, as Jewish Christians. Um, the, the question was on what terms Gentiles could be admitted. Hard for us to see that now, but uh, those questions were absolutely uh, central in the, in the early church. And Luther, as we know, especially towards the end of his life, um, his own frustration with, un with not being able to convert uh, the Jews of his days led him to say some things we wish he hadn't written. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I think we all do that, I guess, and not quite, as, not quite like that, but um, the, the, we were talking, Calvin wrote one book and wrote it 28, 29 times. Uh, Luther wrote a library. <laughs> Luther wrote a library, and, and when you write a library, you can't always, you don't always get it right. Um, brilliant, and yet sometimes very wrong. So. so perhaps in the grand scale of cultural history, the new perspective on Paul movement should largely be seen as a post-Holocaust uh, well, new it certainly reflection. A, it certainly has that. Mm. I... I um, and yes, and yes, the the stress on social mm -hmm. uh, attention to social, political, economic factors when we're reading uh, scripture, mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't shut those things out, mm -hmm. um, and the uh, and the correction about um, about Jewish Christian dialogue, mm -hmm. a very important correction. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there any one last question that anyone's burning to ask? Otherwise, I think we must call this a day. Thank you. Thanks again for Thank coming. Thank you so much, Kathy. Um, it's been wonderful.